Well, as I mentioned, we are in a year-long study of prayer, and the prayer we just read is by King Hezekiah, who is king of Judah in about the 7th or 8th century B.C. And Hezekiah is king of Judah. Judah is a tiny little nation, and they are under attack by Assyria, which is the leading empire in the world. It is the superpower of the world at the time. And so he's under attack. He is overmatched. This is Darty High School versus the Denver Broncos. It is Pee Wee Herman versus The Rock. It is the Incredible Hulk versus Mr. Bean. It is a, it is a mismatch in every sense of the word. And, and so he knows he doesn't have a chance. He knows he doesn't have a chance, but he still has a prayer. And so he prays, and we're going to look at this prayer, and I, one of the things I think we can learn from this prayer is simply this, we can pray honestly, and we can pray honestly. And so we're going to look at the prayer and see how he prays honestly. First, he's honest about the problem, uh, but, but that's not all. He's also honest about God. In our day and age where we value, and I think rightly so, authenticity, uh, honesty, being real, uh, sometimes that can be simply being real about what's bad, and it leads to a sort of cynicism. Uh, it leads to uh, a very negative attitude. We're very honest about the problems. But when we're only honest about the problems, but we're not honest about who God is, uh, it leads to incredible cynicism, uh, faithlessness, even despair. And so let's look at the honesty of Hezekiah's prayer. Let's begin by looking at his honesty about the problems. Uh, no, he's king of Judah. Judah's problems actually began uh, with uh, the nation of Assyria under Hezekiah's father, who's named King Ahaz. Ahaz was a terrible king. And so Ahaz had a problem. He was under attack by the nation of Israel. And instead of trusting God to be his deliverer, he reached out and he paid Assyria some protection money. This is like paying protection money to the mob, right? And so Assyria says, we'll, we'll be your protector, we'll be your defender. And they, they are. But the problem is that Assyria wants to continue with the protection money. You've got to continue to pay them off. And, uh, and so Hezekiah becomes king, and Hezekiah is a righteous man, and he wants to honor God. And so because he wants to honor God, he's going to trust God instead of Assyria, and so he cuts off the payment. Well, the mob didn't take too kindly to that. And so the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, said, you know, I'm not going to let this little pipsqueak of a nation stiff me for the money. And so Hezekiah panics. And when he panics, he says, I'm sorry, let me pay you the money, I'll pay you. He starts, gets all the silver out of the treasury, he melts down the gold out of the temple. It's like he's going in the cup holder of the car, seat cushions of the couch, he's digging up all the change he can to get uh, Sennacherib to back off. Uh, but Sennacherib says, too little, too late. He con Sennacherib conquers the border towns and he's going to destroy Jerusalem. And he says, we don't want your money, we want your, your whole country, and unless you surrender, we are going to annihilate you. And this is not an empty threat. And so it is a very real threat. So Hezekiah receives this letter from Sennacherib. He uh, tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. And the reason for this is his outward appearance will now reflect his inward state. And he's going to go and worship God, but he's not going to wear the finery of his suit and his royal robe. He's going to go and worship God into the temple of the Lord, showing who he really is as a beggar desperate for the Lord's help. 
And so he comes in and, and is a tire of worship, a total wreck, a total mess. And in verse 17, he prays to God and he says, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands. He says, God, this is bad. This is not simply a, an idle threat. I'm not panicking. I'm not making a mountain out of a molehill. It is a mountain. He has laid waste to the nations. Uh, everything uh, they've done, they, they, they destroyed all these nations. Everyone they, they fought, they've won. They are 10-0 and 0 in armed conflict, and they've run up the score against every enemy, and, and it, things are bad. And so one of the things we can learn from Hezekiah here is, is that when we come before God, we don't come before God pretending that everything is okay. Uh, sometimes I th think people in churches have been trained to think when we come and we pray, we got to act like, no, Lord, I believe, I'm confident, it's good, it's not so bad. We put on our suits, we put on our finery, we act like we have it all together. Hezekiah doesn't do that. He's honest to God. He's honest to God about the problem. He's honest to God about the threat. He's honest to God that he is overmatched by what's going on. And so he comes with his deep fears, his deep concerns, and he doesn't try to hide it, and he doesn't pretend. He recognizes it's a wreck, he's a wreck, and he can't handle it. So don't be afraid to come before God with your tears. Don't be afraid to come before him uh, as you are terrified about what's happening around you. Don't think that you have to clean yourself up. I, I think it's fascinating. Hezekiah, before he goes to the temple, doesn't dress up, he dresses down. He doesn't put on his finery, he puts on the sackcloth. He doesn't act like he has it all together, he comes as one who is a mess. The king comes like a wreck and he enters the temple and he prays before God. Don't feel like you have to clean up before God. Hypocrisy will get you nowhere. Hypocrisy will get you nowhere. Come, honest to God. But while we have to be honest about our, and acknowledge our messiness and our desperation, honesty doesn't end there. Honesty doesn't just end by saying these are the problems. We also have to be honest about who God is. And I think oftentimes this is where we fall short. We're honest about the problems, but are we truly being honest with ourselves about who God is? And so Hezekiah, as he comes to pray, he's honest about God's presence. He's honest about God's presence. In verse 17... Hezekiah is honest about how devastatingly powerful Assyria is, but notice what he says. He says, Assyria, though, isn't as great as they think they are. Yes, they conquer the gods of all the other nations, but you know what the gods of all the other nations are? They're not gods. They're paper tigers. Yes, you're 10-0 you're against these other gods, but that's like being 10-0 against nothing. You, you haven't even played the practice squad. Now they're coming up against a real god, uh, the real God of the Bible. So when Hezekiah receives this letter from Assyria, and Assyria talks about how they've conquered all the other gods, and the God of, his, of Judah will be just the same, Hezekiah takes that letter, and he takes it to the temple, and he spreads it out before God. And it's as if he's saying, God, look at this letter. Read it for yourself. See what they're saying about us. But don't just see what they're saying about us, O oh Lord. Look at what they're saying about you. God, your honor is at stake. They're, they're mock, mocking you, O oh Lord. And so he prays this and he says, God, look what they're saying about you. But then he reminds himself who God is. Verse 15, he says, you, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Now, cherubim are, are angelic beings 
They are warriors, they are guardians, they are protectors. They show up very, very early in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Remember when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. They were kicked out of the garden, and in the center of the garden was the, the tree of life. And God does not want humanity in its sinful state to get back to the tree of life. So he guards the tree of life. He stations the cherubim there with flaming swords. So that's who these beings are. They are guardians. The next place we meet the cherubim, or one of the next places, is in the book of Exodus, when God talks about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. And here's a, a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a, uh, this golden box, which was a symbol of God's presence with his people. It was God's throne. It was the, the mercy seat. I thought we had a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, but maybe we don't. Uh, it was God's mercy seat. Now, here's an amazing thing. God's throne is the mercy seat. Think about that right there. That's just a beautiful image. Uh, but on the throne, you notice up top, we have these, and we don't know exactly what it looked like, obviously, uh, Indiana Jones might have it, but it's a, uh, you have these angelic beings and their wings would cover the, the, the mercy seat, cover the throne. And so this was the throne of God. Now, so what he's saying is God is the God of Israel. He is enthroned over the cherubim. He is here. Now the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple, which is in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so what, what he is saying here, he's not simply making a theological statement that God reigns above. He's saying, no, this isn't just a God who reigns above. He's making a personal statement. This is our God. He is our God. He reigns for us. He is for his people. By calling him the, uh, the Lord enthroned above the cherubim, he's making this profound personal statement. God is not just a man upstairs. He is... Uh, He's not just an impersonal force. He's the God who dwells with his people. God doesn't dwell far away. He's not out there somewhere. God is here. He's in the midst of his people. He is not a God. He is our God. To put it another way, God is not neutral. He is biased. He is extremely biased. Biased towards his people. He is always on his people's side. He is always there for them. God's covenant promise to, to, to the Israelites and to the Jews was, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is a covenant bound. It is till death do us part. And so uh, Hezekiah, as he prays, he prays with this knowledge that God is for him. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray and taught us to pray, you remember how he taught us to pray. He starts off, what's the first words? Our Father, who art in heaven. That is not simply a theological statement. It is a theological statement, but it is a personal statement. Our Father, the God who is for us, the God who is our Father, who loves us, who adores us, who, who cherishes us, he is on your side. And when you go to pray, you're not praying to this distant deity who's kind of like apathetic towards you. He's sitting up there saying, let me decide if I really care about you enough to help. You're praying to your father who reigns above the cherubim. Now you might say, how can I think that God is for me? I'm a mess. And not only that, here's what in my life, most of the times when I have a mess in my life, you know who's responsible? Me. Most of my messes, I would like to blame you, frankly, uh, but, but most of my problems in my life are my own fault. And so oftentimes when I pray, I'm thinking, I, 
I made this mess. I can't come now to God and say, God, help me out. It's not like, I mean, I'm not innocent of this. I'm the one who made this. Well, think about Hezekiah and the people of Judah. Why do they have a problem with Assyria? They made the mess. They, didn't, they rebelled against God. They did not trust God. And now they have a problem because of the mess that they have made, and yet Hezekiah doesn't hesitate to call out to God and ask for help. And so, because God's pledged himself to his people. God said, I will be your God, you'll be my people, I am always for you, I'm on your side. And today we have an even greater assurance, an even greater assurance that God is on our side. Think of Romans 8, uh, 31 and 32. Great verses to meditate on. Paul says, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? You you get this idea. He says, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And then notice the logic, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? See, the reason Jesus had to die is because we don't deserve for God to be for us. We've sinned against God, we ignored God, we rebelled God, we forsook God, and therefore we're under the judgment of God. Yet out of love for us, God did not leave us in that state of judgment, but God the Father sent the Son who willingly came and gave his life so that we might be forgiven of our sins and no longer be under the judgment of God. And it doesn't stop there. Not not only are we no longer under the judgment, but Jesus, because of the life that he lived and his obedience, not only paid the penalty for us, but earned for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. So when we pray, God doesn't sit up there and say, well, what have you done lately to deserve this? What have you done that, that why I should listen to you? Why should I care? He's not saying that because Jesus is standing before the Father and saying, look at my works. Look at what I've done. They're yours, O Lord. These are yours. And so we can never ask more of God than what Jesus has earned for us from the Father. And so furthermore, we see that God wants to bless his children. Sometimes we think of the father as being reluctant and the son pleading with the reluctant father to be kind to us. Like God the father's up there going, I don't know. And Jesus is saying, oh, come on, dad, be nice to him. That's not the biblical image. The biblical image we see here is that the father loves his children so much so that he sent the son. The father, the son, and the spirit are not in conflict. They don't have three wills, they have one will. Whatever one does, they all do. They're in full agreement on this. And the father sent the son, and so notice the logic of of Romans 8, 32. If God gave his son for you, do you really think there's anything he's going to withhold from you? If God gave his son, if he's invested like that, if he's shown that kind of love for you, do you really think he's going to withhold anything from you? I saw a friend this week, and I've told this story before, but it reminded me, because as we, were, we were talking about this, actually, he adopted this girl uh, when she was 12 years old out of the foster care system. In the state of Florida, which is where he lived, do you know what the odds are of a girl being abused in foster care if they're there for you know, any amount of time? They adopted this girl. She's 12 years old. She's never known love. She's only known abuse from the people who are supposed to protect her. They bring her into her home, and they treat her just like their other kids. 
And um, one day, the mom is cleaning up the girl's room, and she opens the drawer, and there's all this food stashed in the drawer that's from the pantry. And she goes to the girl, she says, why, you don't have to steal food from the pantry. The pantry's your pantry. All the other kids, whenever they're hungry, they just go get something out of the pantry. You can go get something out of the pantry too, anytime you want. But she had no conception of this. No idea. The only way she had lived before is she would, she, she had no idea that she was actually loved. And before, whenever she wanted something, she stole to get it. And that, this idea that she had parents who would give her just things to enjoy was, was new to her. And my friend was talking to someone else, and he says she is now in her late 20s, almost 30, and she's almost getting to the point where she believes love is real. You know, here, here she's been in this home for a family for 18 years, and she still can't fully grasp this idea that love is real. We are like that. So we've been saying all along in our series on prayer, we act like children who are orphans in the world when we forget that we have been adopted by the Father into his home, and he adores us. We go through the world thinking, if it's going to be, it's up to me, and we forget that our God is not just the God, a God, out there reigning somewhere out there. He is the God who reigns above the cherubim that is right in the midst of his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And when we pray, we need to remember that. You're not praying to God who's indifferent. You're not praying to God who's trying to decide whose side he's on. He is on your side. And you know that through Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, he is for you. Well, not only is he for you, the God who reigns above the the, the cherubim, we also need to be honest about God's power. We we forget who it is we're talking to sometimes, don't we? Uh, Look at the second half of verse 15. He says, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And you know, for Hezekiah, this is a, a profound theological statement because Israel's views about God were different than all the other nations. Everybody else were polytheists. And so you had all these different gods. You had the gods of the mountains, the gods of the sea, the gods of this country, the gods of that country, the gods of fertility, the gods of war. And all these gods had power, but their power was limited to their particular domain. And so the Assyrians were thinking, we've conquered all these other little gods. We're going to conquer the God of Israel just as easily because he's the God of Israel. But what Hezekiah is saying, no, he's not the God of Israel. Well, yes, he is. He's our God. But guess what? He's the Lord who made heaven and earth. He alone is God. He alone is the one who has power. So the Assyrians are bragging about how they've uh, beat these other gods But Hezekiah is saying, no, you haven't. You haven't beaten anybody. You haven't even stepped into the ring. And now you're about to step into the ring with the only true God. Yes, you're good at video games. This is war. You're about to meet the real God, the real king. The Lord of Israel alone is God. He's not just the ruler of Israel. He's not just the God of the earth or the sky. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Over half a century ago, J.B. Phillips uh, came out with a book that was uh, very popular, and the title alone sums it all up. Your God is too small. Your God is too small. 
And uh, Philip says that many Christians cherish what he calls this hothouse God. It's a God who thrives perfectly in a well-contained environment. You know, and in, in fact, he says this God thrives in the pages of the Bible and in the four walls of the church, but he can't really handle it in the real world. And that many Christians are worshiping a God like that instead of worshiping the God who is almighty, who is all-powerful, who does reign over all things. We pray to a small God who can handle small problems, and we don't expect much from the small God because we don't think he can handle much. So when a big problem arises and we don't see any possible way that anybody can solve the problem, we assume that God can't solve the problem because that's how big our God is. We, God is nothing more than like a, a superhero, human, but with a little bit more power. And, and yet what we see in scripture, that is not who God is. He's the God who reigns over heaven and earth. But when we have a small God, when big problems arise and we show no way out, we are, are incapable of seeing any possible good that can come from it. When we experience pain and we don't think there can possibly be anything redemptive in that pain, when we don't think that, uh, uh, that there's any hope, we lose faith. We don't pray. We give in to anxiety and fear. But Hezekiah here has a real problem. It seems an impossible problem. And you may be facing an impossible problem. And you may not be making a mountain out of a molehill. Here's the problem. You forgot who made the mountains. The Lord made the mountains. He made the heavens and the earth. He reigns over all. And by the way, here's an interesting thing for us to remember too. Sometimes we wonder, am I praying with enough faith? The very fact that you're praying shows you have enough faith. If you didn't have any faith, you wouldn't bother to pray. So don't worry about whether you have enough faith. You have enough faith to say, dear God, you have enough faith. Uh, and because you're calling out, hoping that he has, can help, even with, amidst your doubts. But one of the problems I think we have in prayer is that we usually spend more time ruminating on our problems than we do ruminating on God's power and God's presence. You know, I, I, I know this from personal experience. Uh, different times, was, last week, I was, something was going on, and I was praying about it, and I was bothered by it, and I was doing it, and I was on a run, and I was just praying, and, and I'd gone for a long time. I don't think I'd really thought about God at all. I called it prayer, but I had not thought about God at all. All I thought about was the problem. And, and the scope of the problem and the magnitude of the problem and how the problem could be solved. And I'm, I'm calling this prayer, that's not prayer. That is feeding fear. And instead, what we need to do is we need to be honest about our problem, but do, are we honest about who God is, about his might, about his power, about his glory, about his love for you? One of the reasons we go and praise God, and here's a misunderstanding I had early in my Christian life. I thought, well, you start off with praise because you want to tell God how good he is before you get to him asking what you need from him. You know, butter him up with the praise, get to the request, right? The request is the main thing I'm here for. We praise God, one, is because he deserves it. He's worthy. But we also praise God because we need to remember who he is. We are so good at forgetting. And so we pray and we remember and we, we need to, to ruminate on his power, ruminate on, on his goodness. And so we need to more and more and more meditate on who it is we're praying to. 
And when we remember who it is we're praying to, we can be like Hezekiah. We can go into the temple. We can tear our robes off. We can put on sackcloth. We can take the request before him in in a panic and say, God, look at this. Look at how bad this is. This is horrible. But these people are nothing compared to you. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. And you're the God who reigns above the cherubim. And when we remember that we are loved by a God with this kind of power, we can pray with faith and with hope and with confidence. Now, a number of years ago, our family minivan was, um, was having some serious problems. And um, it was going to be very expensive to fix. And we lived in Florida, and it was summer. And so think of, you know, yesterday how it was a bit warm. So at about 8 degrees, and it's a little bit warmer because it's always right around 8, 98, 99 in Orlando in the summertime. But, but it's not that bad because it's a wet heat. And so <laughs> it's... Um, you know, you go around and you get, you know, as soon as you walk outside, it's like you've been, you jumped in the pool or something. You're just dripping wet. And we, uh, you know, as a church planter, our church didn't have much money. We didn't have much money and, um, and we just couldn't afford to get it fixed. Well, every week my, my parents would call and we'd talk. My dad would always say, do you need anything? And I'd always say, No. And because I didn't need anything, right? I mean, you know, people live without air conditioning for, you know, thousands of years, just not in Florida. Uh, but um, uh, so I didn't need anything. And so I, but I knew if I told him, he'd fix the problem. And I'm a big boy. I can handle my own problems, right? And so I didn't tell him. And my sister, I think she'd been to visit or somehow found out about our car problems. She went home. She told my dad, just like your big sister, always telling on you. And, uh, and so my dad calls the next week and he says, I hear your car needs fixing. And, no, it's fine. I'm just lying at this point. It's fine. We'll fix it. Well, I want to help you fix it. No, Dad, I got it handled. Well, I'm sending you money anyway. No, Dad, I don't need your money. I got it handled. Well, check's in the mail. I got off the phone, and I cried. And I've become more of a crier as I get older. But uh, at that point in my life, I cry maybe once every decade or two, you know. I'm a father of three daughters. I don't need to do the crying in the household. We have others (laughs) who can handle that. And I just, I'm just, I mean, I'm bawling. And I'm bawling for two reasons. One is, I hated the fact that I needed help. I want to be independent. But even more, I have a father that all I have to do is breathe that I need help. He's going to reach out and help me. Christian, do you think your heavenly father loves you any less than my father loved me? Do you think your heavenly father is any less capable of coming to your aid than my father was capable of coming to mine? You have a father who created heaven and earth, who reigns over all the nations, who rules over every aspect of creation. And he's not just powerful, he's the God of Israel. He is your God, he is for you. And that's why we can pray. Let me pray now. Father, we come before you, remembering your goodness, your might, your power. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our forgetfulness. Forgive us for thinking that you're a tiny little God who can only handle little problems, that you can only come up with solutions that we can imagine. Forgive us for not remembering that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly far more than we could ask or think. So, Lord, we pray that even as we 
pray, we would pray to the true God that we'd be honest about you. And even as we are honest about you, we pray, Father, that you would also remind us that you are for us. You may be here today and you're really wondering if God is for you. You're wondering how could he be for you when you have not been for him? Well, it could be that you have not yet entered that relationship with him. And until you do, you will not know his love and his power and what it means that he is for you. So you can come before him even now and say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've been living a life as an orphan in the world. I've been going through life as if I'm on my own. I didn't know there's a father who could adopt me. So I come before you and I confess my sin against you, my rebellion against you. I confess my thinking that I can make it on my own apart from you. And I turn from my sin and I embrace you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died to pay the penalty of my sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you lived to earn every blessing before the Father before me, for me. And so now, Lord, I receive you as my Savior and as my Lord. And I know that now I can live in confidence that I am not alone and that you are with me. And Lord, for all of us who know you, may you reassure us of your kindness and of your love and of your power towards us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.